On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus then and now. We're by the Sea of Galilee, Mike. We couldn't be much closer, actually. Virtually put our feet in the water <laughs> that close. And this is the Sea of Galilee. Some people call it the lake. Please clarify. Yeah, I think it's the rest of us who think it's not big enough, really, to be a sea, is it? Um, but in Hebrew, it is a sea. In fact, classic Hebrew doesn't have a word for lake, so it is always the sea, and it's either the Sea of Galilee in the Old Testament. It's very often called the Sea of Kinnereth. Kinnereth means harp. And if you think of a map and how the Sea of Galilee look, it looks like the sort of classic harp, like the, the Irish harp almost. So the harp sea, um, the Sea of Galilee, because that's where it's located. And beautiful day again here, sun shining and all the rest of it. The hills in the distance, Tiberius off to one side to the right. We're actually on a kind of jetty where the boats, the tourist boats, go out to give you a, an experience. Yeah, so, and I've been on those many times, so we could get some big crowds passing us any moment. So we literally got the Sea of Galilee all around us because we're on this jetty out to the boats. You get a great experience if you go out on them. Uh, and there's nothing better than to actually go out on a boat and then they often just cut the engine and you sit there in the quiet of the sea and you hear the water lapping alongside of the wooden boat. And for me, that is one of the best experiences of coming to the Holy Land. So many of the people I bring say the same. Because at that moment, it's like this is how it was for Jesus so often. Here in a boat, hearing the water lapping gently against the side and you look out and the sort of things you were seeing are certainly in general terms the things that he would have seen look north and you're seeing the northern edge of the sea of galilee and beyond it the hills going right up to mount hermon on a clear day look south and you can look to the bottom of the sea of galilee where it pours out into the river jordan and goes down to the dead sea look to our east and there is what we would call these days the Golan Heights or what were the towns of the Decapolis. Look west and we can see where we've already been in earlier episodes that pass through Mount Arbel going up to Nazareth and the plain of Galilee all along it. So we're in an amazing site there's nothing better than to go out on one of those boats that's going out right now some music playing in the background there of people just enjoying sailing where Jesus sailed. The size of the Sea of Galilee, what, what would we be talking about, just to get a sense of the scale? Yeah, I mean, it's really um, not huge, and for English listeners, yeah, it looks a little bit like one of the larger of the lakes in, in the Lake District, doesn't it? Surrounded completely on hills on all sides, and with deep clefts in the rocks and the hills sides very often, which accounts for some of those sudden windstorms that, that come down. And Jesus used the sea in many ways. Do you know what? In some ways, this, this sea is almost his second home. We've, we've been in Capernaum in a previous episode and seen how that was his base. But, you know, in many ways, we could almost say this, this sea here that's only, what, 150 metres deep at its deepest point was almost like a second home to him, if I can put it that way, because he used it so much, he crossed it so much, um, 
it, it really was a key part of his ministry. In what ways did he use it? Well, um, the first way was he used to use it to get around. I mean, this was one of the easiest ways of getting from one part of the sea to, to another. So we're at a place called uh, Nof Ginnasar. Uh, Ginnasar is the modern name for Gennesaret, a name that appears in the Bible. In fact, this was sometimes called the Sea of Gennesaret. So all the towns around here, whether it's Gennesaret, Tabga, Capernaum, Bethsaida, some of the cities of the Decapolis, there were lots of harbors all around this part of the lake in New Testament times. Uh, archaeologists have discovered at least uh, 16 harbours around the lake uh, and other settlements that didn't have harbours had at least places you could pull up boats. So getting around by boat was the easiest way. It saved you making the long trek around the coast, so it was much, much quicker. The equivalent of a water taxi, perhaps? Yeah, absolutely, uh, absolutely. And... Uh, that is something that Jesus used often as one of the quickest ways of getting from one side to the other, including that far side over there on the east, the area of the Decapolis, the ten cities, that many Jews avoided because they felt it was influenced by too much Greek culture. So that was Gentile territory? Yeah, very much so. Apart from just moving around by boat, because it was quicker to hop in a boat yeah. than uh, travel by foot, obviously, there was obviously an industry going on here as well. Yeah, yeah, uh, a fishing industry. The, uh, the fishing industry was uh, a really big deal around this parts of the world. Um, we've seen in a previous episode how the warm springs at Tabga mean the fish often gather up here on this northern edge of the lake. Um, the fishing industry was thriving in New Testament times. It was thriving that much that Herod decided to uh, tax the fishing industry. We know from records there were at least 14 different kinds of fish in the lake in New Testament times, mainly, mainly tilapia, or St. Peter's fish as it's sometimes called now, tilapia, carp, and the good old um, sardines. And fish was uh, a significant part of the local diet. So not only was it caught here for local use, it was also exported to Jerusalem and even way beyond there. And Galilee fish sauce, sauce made from the fish here, was world-renowned and it was exported as far away as Rome and Spain. So fishing was a really big industry in this part of the world. There's a couple of local fishermen just behind us with their fishing rods. Uh, they've, they've been been out today. Just a reminder that there, was, there were different sorts of fishing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The, the rod and the line wasn't the normal way, though... Jesus on one occasion told Peter to cast a line to catch that fish that the coins were inside to pay the temple tax. Um, the, the way fishing was mainly done was it could be with rod and line, it could be with spearing, but the really big ways that it was done on an industrial scale here was either with a cast net, which is that sort of circular net that you spin around your head and fling into the sea and then pull the rope back to you, or a dragnet, and we get references to that in the Gospels, uh, and it being stretched between two boats, and they'd go out a little way from the shore, lower down their nets, and then gradually come in towards the shore, pulling the net tighter, 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 and uh, trapping the fish. So the cast net and the dragnet were the big ways that fishing on an industrial scale would have been done here uh, on the Sea of Galilee. 
So when you read references to Jesus telling the disciples to fish in a particular way, he's telling them the right technique. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Of course, uh, some of them took umbrage at it sometimes, didn't they? Because they thought, what is a carpenter builder telling us experts how to do? But of course, whenever he did tell them what to do, cast your net on the other side, he said to the disciples after the resurrection. And in casting their net, the right technical term there, they ended up with one of the biggest catches they'd ever had. When you go out on these boats as tourists, there's a group coming back past us now and a group just going out to another boat, so they'll be chatting away, I'm sure. Do you, do you have a kind of demonstration of, of the, uh, the casting of the net? Yeah, I mean, one of the most common things on these boats that go out, that take tourists out, is they love playing loud music uh, and they love uh, having, having a gealer and you teaching your head to dance around in circles in the Jewish dancing. Um, I tend to say to them, please, I'm not bothered about the music and I really don't want the dancing, not because I'm anti-music or anti-dancing, but I think there's much better things to do out there, not least experience the peace and serenity. Um, but it's very common, and particularly they will do it if you ask them, give a demonstration of how to use a cast net. And I've seen the captains of the boat throwing the cast net out and pulling it in and they get nothing. And uh, then he said, what shall I do? And of course, some wag says, try the other side. So he tries the other side. And they normally have a wooden fish tucked under the ledge of the boat so that as he pulls it in this time, he can come grab hold of the wooden fish and say, yeah, we did it by catching the other side. So it's a great, great experience. Anyone who comes to visit Israel, you must make sure you go out on one of these boats. But tell them to turn the music down a bit. <laughs> but these are tourist boats <laughs> to take a particular group of people. Yeah. But there's another boat in a building not far from where we are. Oh, that is amazing. So just behind us, there is a museum which has a boat that was discovered. It was actually back in 1986. And two fishermen, that's their job, they, they were fishing just probably 100 yards or so from where we are sitting now. Uh, but these fishermen were also a bit of amateur archaeologists. They, they like to go out and do the odd bit of digging. And as they were fishing, the water was a little bit lower that day and they saw on the beach something sticking up through the, the sand at the edge. And as they gently pulled it back, gently because they were amateur archaeologists, they thought, hello, what's this? This looks like old wood, very old wood. And so they reported it to the authorities. Obviously, it was investigated carefully. They pulled a little more sand off, discovered that it was a boat that they thought was from the first century. So with great care, they made a cradle for it. They wrapped it in foam so they could get it out without damaging it. Then very carefully took time to, to dry it out so it could be displayed. And it now sits in a cradle inside the museum behind us. And radiocarbon dating has actually dated it now to the time of Jesus. Now, did Jesus use that boat? I can't prove it to you but it was from that time, it may well have been one of the boats that he used. It was um, 22 feet long, seven and a half feet wide, very shallow draft, so that meant it could get in close to the edge of the sea and do some of that dragnet fishing that we've talked about. And it's made of, uh, they've discovered 12 different types of wood. Now that's be not because they set out to make 12 different types of wood when they created it. But rather, um, what's happened is this is a real working boat. 
and there are bits of wood that have been replaced over the years so when it's had a hole or when it's got damaged in some way they've gone out and got another bit of wood whatever they could find and these 12 different types of wood constitute this boat so there we have right behind us a typical example of that 27 foot by seven and a half foot boat that these fishermen would have used and that Jesus would have traveled in so often as he sailed these waters. It's a remarkable reminder of how there are still things to be discovered. I mean, it must be amazing for archeologists to, to come and find <laughs> things that can still be 2000 years old. Do you know anything that is done round here unearths something? There is loads of archeological data still to be recovered. In fact, just down from where we are now in Magdala, they were wanting to build a hotel right by the sea just a few years ago. And as they started digging its foundations, thought, hello, what's this? And discovered these ruins of the synagogue that Jesus would have used at that time. And of course, they then have to bring the government in and the archeologists in, and they have now re revealed this fantastic ruins of, of this first century synagogue and the whole hotel had to sort of move backwards and sideways to accommodate this in Jerusalem they're constantly finding things but what I love about this is it wasn't archaeologists who went out hunting it was it was two two local fishermen who in the routine of life found a little something and thought hello what's this and it turned out honestly to be one of the discoveries of the century the sort of boat Jesus would have sailed in and we now know at last exactly how they would have looked, how big they were, how big they weren't. Perhaps in our minds are, you know, we think of some really big boat that Jesus sailed on. But no, just 27 feet long, seven and a half feet wide. And that's the sort of boat, if not the very boat, who knows, that Jesus sailed in on these waters. And the sort of boat that Jesus would have commandeered as well. That's what he often did. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Sometimes he did commandeer a boat. I'm sure they were willing for that to happen. But there's a story in Luke 5 where he asks for the use of a boat to be able to use it as a floating pulpit because, um, you know, he just couldn't find space to be able to talk to the crowd and so he gets in a boat to be able to pull out a little way from them so he's not being overcrowded. So, you know, you ask at the start of this conversation how did he use the boats well certainly to get around but hey there was a novel uh, use for it to use it as a floating pulpit because as we're you know, not far from the shore we're on this jetty looking back to the land as it were you can imagine actually how the actual acoustic would have lent itself to being heard by a big crowd if he was in the boat you can yeah, see it absolutely it, it would have been amazing you know jesus Let's put it this way, Jesus wasn't afraid of using technology. Uh, we saw that he used technology, as it were, at uh, the Mount of the Beatitudes with the Sermon on the Mount, where he used the natural lie of the land, and here he's able to well use the silence that there is by the sea uh, to be able to communicate his message to people. It's probably a lot more quiet than it is today with all the passing tourists. Yeah, they're all heading towards the, the tourist boats. And also we can feel the wind. It's not you know a storm by any means but it's it's a bit breezy even just here near the near it the really shore is, isn't it and uh, you know one of the reasons for that is if you look around us now we can see yet yeah, hills on all sides you know there's nowhere where there isn't a hill surrounding the whole of the sea of galilee here but we can also see in between the hills at various points straight over there to the west certainly 
behind us here is a great example of the Arbel Pass that we've looked at in a previous episode. And as we look at that from here, David, we can see how very steep that pass is. And what used to happen was the wind would howl down these passes, depending which direction it was coming from, and would then whip up the surface of this sea. In fact, some years ago, I was out on one of these boats. We were right in the middle. And uh, all of a sudden, the captain announced, storm coming. And I looked to the northeast, as it was on that occasion, and the sky was black and heading towards us. And without any delay, he just turned the boat round and headed back for the harbour. We didn't make it because within two or three minutes... The storm was on us, the sea was being whipped up, the wind was howling. So when we read those stories in the Gospels of a storm suddenly coming up, it really did happen, it really does still happen, and I've experienced it myself. And if that was happening in the kind of boat that's on display here, not a very big boat, you know, a shallow draft, that would have been a frightening experience. Yeah, I don't think I would have wanted to be on it. I mean, I would was on one of these boats here which are much bigger boats designed for tourists and you're much further away from the level of the sea but yeah I mean those boats the, the, the gunnel at the side really wasn't that high above the water so I think you can imagine that for landlubbers really which many of them were some were experienced fishermen but a lot of his disciples were landlubbers as we can call it people who weren't used to the sea and even then considering that some were experienced fishermen for them to get frightened of the storm, I tell you what, it was a bad storm on those occasions because they would have seen many a storm in their lifetime. Yet the storms that came up that particular day was something like they'd not known before. Remind us where we'd find a story like that in the Bible. Well, uh, one of the good places to read is here in Mark chapter 4, which is the story of um, Jesus stilling the storm. So I'll read to you from Mark 4 and verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. So there he is commuting. We've talked earlier about how Jesus often used boats to get from one side of the lake to the other. So leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And there were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat. Now, we've just said they weren't that high, so it was easy to happen, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion, and the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And he got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Wow, put yourself in the story again, as we've often said in this series. These guys, some of whom were ex-professional sailors of this sea, so terrified because of the ferocity of the storm that day. And what I love in this story is that little line about Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. Now, I've had friends in life who can go off to sleep and sleep through most things, but this was of a different order. 
completely. I mean, imagine, this is not just the wind blowing, it's not just, um, you know, rain coming down if there was rain or waves lapping up. Your boat is being tossed around all over the place. It's only a small boat. And there is Jesus asleep in the storm. Do you know there is such a powerful picture there even before we go any further? Why could Jesus do that? Because he was secure. He knew who he was, he knew who his father was, he knew his destiny, and he knew that he didn't need to panic. So he could carry on sleeping while the rest of them panicked. And what an amazing story. And I think that's a model of you know what God wants for us. Come on guys, so have your trust and confidence in me that no matter what the storms of life might come to you, you don't need to be afraid. I'm there with you. You can be asleep in the storm. I'll get you through this, don't worry. What was the reaction of the disciples? I think it was not as you would have expected, or perhaps it was. Yeah, teacher, don't you care if we drown? I mean, what a stupid thing to say. I think it came out of fear. Do you know, we often say things when we're afraid, don't we, that we don't really mean. And after all this time that they'd been with him, surely they knew that he cared. And surely they knew that he cared if they drowned. But I think it's the fear which again tells us how bad this storm was. Teacher, don't you care if we drown is a reflection of what these guys were facing. And Jesus' response to that? Quiet, be still. Uh, not my answer to you there, <laughs> David. Um, he got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. I love that. In the original Greek, that Mark wrote his gospel in, based on the account of the life of Peter. The actual word in Greek is, be muzzled. It's the word that's used of muzzling a dog when you put one of those guards over a dog's mouth to stop it snapping. And it's as if Jesus is saying to this ferocious dog, yeah, shut up, get your muzzle on. And instantly it stops, why? because it's the Lord of glory, it's the Lord of creation who's come into this world, who has spoken a word, his world and his word. And by that word, the storm instantly disperses. And he turns round to them and says, what was wrong guys? Do you still not have any faith? No, that word still, come on. After all you've seen, did you not think that I could deal with this? challenge there to us I'm sure that you know often we get in a panic don't we when stuff happens in life something unexpected happens I think Jesus would say to us at times like that come on look back what have I done for you before what have you seen me do before do you not think I could deal with this one as well of course he can he's the lord of the sea he's the lord of the storms he's the lord of life I notice it says he rebuked the storm. I mean, that's a strong word, rebuked. Yeah, and it's often the word that he uses for rebuking demons. And there's a little hint behind the scenes. It's almost as if the curtains pull back to see what's happening behind the happening. And it seems to be as if Jesus recognised here, here was a satanic attempt to disrupt and to destroy we know that Satan tried to destroy Jesus anyway. He tried to destroy him at his birth, didn't he? When he caused Herod to have all those baby boys exterminated so he could get rid of Jesus. 
Satan tried to get rid of him through the temptations and so on. Go on, throw yourself from this pinnacle and see if God will save you. So it looks as if Jesus is seeing here in this ordinary, as we can call it, event of nature, something more than that. It looks as if he saw here as an outright attempt of the devil to try and destroy him and his followers. And therefore, he rebuked the event that Satan was stirring up in the same way that he rebuked any demon that he cast out from people in many places around this lake. And as the tourists still come through off the boat, back on another boat, it's just constant, isn't it? It, it really is. is. And, well, and many I'm... different nations as well. I don't know if you've noticed that. Yeah. Um, you know, lots of different languages that we're hearing as people come and go. And just a reminder that people of all sorts of nations, Christians from all sorts of backgrounds come here to recall to do what we're doing to look at jesus then and now and to walk in his steps or to sail in his steps in this particular case this conversation though is called his sea uh, jesus doesn't own the sea of galilee does he <laughs> not at all but i think i decided to give it this particular title because in a sense it, it's a sort of double-edged meaning it was his sea in the sense that well first of all he created it the bible's very clear that the life of Jesus, the eternal Son of God, did not begin at the conception in Nazareth. He had existed from the beginning of time with his Father. So in that sense, it is his sea, because he is the eternal Son of God, created it. It's his sea in the sense that when he was here on earth, he used it again and again, as we've seen, to travel backwards and forwards, to use as a floating pulpit. But it was his sea also in the sense that he controlled it in that story that we've just looked at. He spoke and it had to respond to the voice of the Lord of glory. So it's his sea at a whole number of different levels, not that he sort of owned it like we might own his car or something like that, um, but it's his. It's his by creation, it's his by use, it's his by control, it's his by authority. It's a wonderful place to be, to remember him. I'm just smiling because all these tourists that are coming off the boats and going back on, they've got life buoys, they've got staff, they've got the security of quite a large boat. Yeah. You don't really get a sense of what it must have been like in the story you read to be caught up in a wild storm right out there in the kind of middle of nowhere. Yeah, well as I said I was caught up in a storm on one of these bigger boats and even that was scary enough. But when you think back to what that boat is like, the remnants of that boat inside the museum behind us, think how small it was. Yeah, little wonder they were terrified. Little wonder that even some of these disciples who were experienced fishermen, who'd, who'd spent years on this water, they knew it like the back of your hand. You know, if ever you've talked to uh, a sailor or a fisherman in a, in a harbour somewhere in Britain, guys who go out fishing, they know the water's like the back of their hand. They can read the tides, they can read the weather. And so would people like Peter and James and John and Andrew. And yet even those guys were terrified. That's how big a storm it was. I think Jesus allowed it to be, not because Satan had the upper hand, but because he got something to teach them. You know what, in life, even those of who are experienced and got gifts run out, we come to the end of our resources. And they came to the end of their resources that day, desperately needed Jesus to intervene which of course he did do. And as you've reflected on that particular passage in the Bible, that particular incident, what 
would you imagine those disciples learnt from that? little hard to know, isn't it? But because we weren't there and it doesn't tell us. But I'm pretty sure they would have learnt that there isn't any situation that lies beyond the power and authority of Jesus. No matter what storm, literal or metaphorical, comes into our life, we don't need to panic. Actually, the best way to face it is to be asleep in the storm. Because what was Jesus doing? He was entrusting it to his heavenly Father, believing that he was still in control, even while he was sleeping. And he believed the Psalms that said, you know, the Lord will not let your foot stumble, that God is a God who neither slumbers nor sleeps. God was well aware of it. So I think there was a big lesson for them to learn that day about trusting Jesus, whatever the circumstances, whatever the situation, whatever the demonic and satanic attack against you. Hey, it's okay. Be muzzled. Jesus has it all in hand. Because they were his, his apprentices. They, he was always trying to teach them something. Yeah, absolutely. And there wasn't any event in life that wasn't purposeful, just as for us. You know, nothing we go through in life is random. You know, history is not just one event after another, as Henry Ford, the car maker, summed it up years ago. There is a God in heaven who reigns, who's in control, who, even when things seem to go wrong, still has a plan, still works all things together for good and for his good purpose and for the good in our lives. And it's good to remember from that particular story as we think about his sea and all that happened here. You know, whatever comes our way in life, whatever storms come our way, it's okay. Give it to him. He's always got a plan, even if you don't. Well, as another tourist group passes us and gets onto a tourist boat, just pray for us as we reflect on the Sea of Galilee, his sea. Lord Jesus, in this place of great calm, we remember sometimes that in life, the calm of life is suddenly turned into a storm as the lake was turned into a storm that day. When those storms come, help us not to panic, but to put our trust in you and to believe that you always have a solution you always have the right to say into every situation, be muzzled. And it has to obey you. Teach us to trust you. As the disciples learned to trust you that day, we pray. In your name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land, tracing the life of Jesus then and now. Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30 minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs, or Bible surprises. Yeah.